Well, good morning to you, dear people of God. I have to confess that when I heard this transition in the music, I thought, we are going to hear you two this morning, aren't we? And, uh, and I'm waiting and waiting. And we go into, of course, you know, John Newton and Amazing Grace. And I have to confess that I need to tell you a little story, though, before we step into the morning together. Some years ago, uh, Bono himself was talking to a friend of mine named Steve Turner, who's a writer, uh, lives in London, the Londoner from way, way, way back. And they're writing about musicians for his whole life, basically, writing books about the Beatles, about Van Morrison, and, and all sorts of people, really. And he and Bono were talking about music and about the church and about history. And Bono said, you know, you ought to write a book about John Newton's song, Amazing Grace, Steve. And Steve, you know, took that to heart and began thinking it through and finally produced a book a few years ago called Amazing Grace, the story of a song, which is a story really of why this was America's best song or our favorite song in America. And kind of walking through many, many editions over the years of artists who've given their best shot at singing this song one more time. Um, a few years ago, a movie came out called Amazing Grace, the story of Wilberforce, maybe you saw that story, but actually it came out of Steve's book, uh, was the reason that they named this movie that one. So thank you for a little bit of you two this morning and John Newton as well. Well, see ourselves as implicated, to see ourselves as implicated. Yesterday morning, I got a ride to the airport with my neighbor and my friend Todd Dethridge. We've been neighbors for many years together. We've chosen to be neighbors by choice, actually. Maybe you know that imagery. It comes out of the Clapham community that Wilberforce and others were part of 200 plus years ago in London. They had as their credo to choose a neighbor before you choose a house, to choose a neighbor before you choose a house. And so my wife and I have always lived that way together since our first decision about being married and living together and being in a neighborhood, we chose a neighbor before we chose our house, and have always chosen that way. And so we have neighbors, and Todd and Judy Dethridge are part of this little community that we live in, the metropolitan morass of Washington, D.C. Um, basically, it's really an attempt to hold on to some hope in the midst of a very broken world. And how do you hold on? I don't know. It's hard to do that, but maybe if you have people who are kindred spirits who can have some common life together, you can find a way to push back against the anonymity and the complexity and bureaucracy and aloneness of a huge city like Washington is. So we have neighbors by choice, and Todd and Judy are some of them. And talked at me to the airport yesterday morning. We were just talking about things. We meet together typically on Wednesday mornings for a, a, a while with another neighbor and friend, Mark. And, and Mark was out of town, so we got together on the way to the airport yesterday. Todd was leaving yesterday afternoon, a few hours after I left, but from another airport, uh, on his way to Jerusalem. About once a month, he goes to Jerusalem and takes pilgrims with him from all over the U.S., mostly all over the U.S. His project is called the Telos Project. Okay, the Telos Project. Todd was the chief of staff on Capitol Hill for a long time. Eventually became the chief of staff for Condoleezza Rice when she was Secretary of State, and over her think tank, basically, within the State Department. And in those years, Todd spent a lot of time in the Middle East, especially along the Jordan River, uh, especially in Jerusalem and the other side of the Jordan River, and working out you know, what the US policy was going to be in that part of the world. When he finished his tenure in the State Department, he was 
thinking through, okay, the rest of my life, and this was a possibility, this was a possibility. And one of the things we talked about was creating his own organization with a friend of his named Gregory Khalil, K-H-A-L-I-L. Gregory has about 70 first cousins in Bethlehem, uh, has for generations and centuries been part of a long Christian tradition in Bethlehem, a Christian and a Palestinian, of course, by name Gregory Khalil. They started the Telos group. They just call it Telos now. But their argument is a very unpopular one in both the church and the world, sadly, uh, almost all over the world and all throughout the church. That is that you can't really choose sides when push comes to shove. It is complex. It's an incredibly complex story. Uh, But there are two histories and two hopes in that part of the world, and both have to be remembered, both have to be honored. Their argument is not a happy argument for people throughout either the church and the world typically, because we do want to choose sides most of the time between God's people, after all, and the oppressed of the world, after all. We're going to choose sides one or the other. And Todd says, no, you just can't do that. They both have histories. They both have hopes. We're going to try to step into the complexity of this mess. I often think about all this when I'm thinking about my brother and my friend and my neighbor, Todd. Why is it, Todd, you would choose to step into a mess? You could not do that. When you're a chief of staff in Washington, D.C., the typical pattern, which is not an evil thing to do at all, good people have done this and do this, is to turn your knowledge of political life in the city into a lobbying position, which you know, is also on behalf of, I hope, the common good of the nation and the world. But it's clearly a path to a lot more money than Todd makes. It isn't a good or a bad in terms of what he's chosen to do that way. But he's chosen to step into a very complicated mess, a very difficult mess, really. You see, dear people, almost always we choose not to for a thousand reasons, for a thousand reasons. Hear these words. Ways of knowing are not morally neutral, but morally directive. Epistemologies have ethical implications. For everyone, everywhere. Ways of knowing are not morally neutral, but morally directive. Epistemologies have ethical implications. It is simply to say that, in fact, the way we see and why we see what we see actually has moral meaning. It either is going to take us in a certain direction or keep us away from that direction. Because, you see, we see in a certain way. And, of course, all of us, sons of Adam, daughters of Eve as we are, we see out of our hearts, don't we? That's the deepest truth about all this. We see out of our hearts. And so for my friend Todd and for his work and for all of you and for all of us and for all of us all throughout the world today. We do see out of our hearts. And my question about Todd is, why would you enter into a mess, Todd, a complicated mess when you could have chosen otherwise? I have for most of my life been taken by the Hebrew epistemology. I won't use that word again this morning, I promise you. Um, And you don't have to to be a good person. But epistemology is simply what we see, why we see, how we see. And if Jesus is going to make a big deal, and he does, about having eyes to see, then we ought to be people who think about that, having eyes to see. And though he doesn't use the word epistemology, clearly he's assuming this Hebrew way of seeing, this Hebrew way of knowing, which is to be summed up pretty simply, but it has profound implications, of course, in this imagery here. From Genesis all the way through Malachi, if you have knowledge of It means you have responsibility to. It means you have care for. 
If you have knowledge of it, it means you have responsibility to it. It means you have care for it. So to know means to be responsible. To be responsible means to care. We could walk our way slowly and slowly, and I have done some thinking about this, writing about this. It's in this book that was mentioned this morning. There's a whole chapter on this Hebrew way of knowing. And the argument is that from Genesis all the way through, from Adam knew Eve, his wife, the strangely mysterious, tender, personal knowledge that, that was for the two of them. The very same Hebrew word yada, of course, is translated in Exodus chapter 1, and a pharaoh came who knew not Joseph. It wasn't that sexual, intimate. It was basically saying, I don't care about Joseph and his history. This is a new day in Egypt. Let's get on with it, okay? It's the Machiavellian moment in Egyptian history of realpolitik here and now, and no longer Joseph and the legacy and the history of Jews, but now it's Egypt and the future, really. It's the same Hebrew word yada, which is translated in the book of Proverbs, that a righteous man cares about justice for the poor, but the wicked have no such concern. It's that same Hebrew idea, the same Hebrew vision of knowing, which says, if you know, then you've got to care. And you see, if you don't care, then you don't know. There's much more that could be said about all that. But walk that way through with me from Old to New Testament here. And again, in the Gospels at large, there is this vision, I would argue, that to know is to love. And if you don't love, then you don't know. I would say probably the easy, one of the best stories of this, windows into this in the whole of the Gospels, is this Gospel we had read this morning, the story we've simply called over the years the story, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And we all know it so well, don't we? Come back with me to where the story begins. It begins, of course, with an expert in the law. An expert in the law. In Walker Percy's imagery, this man was somebody who got all A's, but who was still flunking life. He'd gotten all A's, but still flunked life. He was an expert in the law. He'd mastered every letter of the law, every yod and yota of the law. For those of you who are studying Hebrew this year at Asbury Seminary. Every letter, every stroke of the law, he'd mastered it. He was an expert after all. But he'd missed the point, hadn't he? He'd missed the meaning of the law. That's the itch issue here. And he wants to, in a strange way, in the first century Palestine, he wants to deconstruct the word neighbor, doesn't he? He'd never heard of Derrida or anybody else in that time. But he wants to abstract neighbor and say, well, you see, neighbor, it's out here, really. What's a neighbor going to be anyway? What is a neighbor after all? Jesus won't go there with him. But he says to him, no, I'll tell you a story now. I won't play the academic game with you, where I went to school, what my degree is, who are my professors, but I will tell you a story. You want to hear a story? Expert in the law. And of course, it's the simple story we've just had read to us, and we all know very, very well. I won't try to exposit it here to you. There are others in the faculty and your lives who do much, do much better job than that I could ever do for that. But think about this. These two folk who walked along the road to Jericho, it looks a little bit like that first slide I showed to you with that you know, broad, broad you know, hills, desert-looking hills, and descending down from you know, Jerusalem and that into Jericho. And here's an old, old version of a painting uh, that looks a little bit like that. But he had their reasons, didn't they? Sociological reasons historical reasons, theological reasons to say, I don't see a neighbor here. There's no neighbor here on the side of the road. And they could walk right on by, indifferent to what they 
was there to be seen because, you see, they had no eyes to see a neighbor. And that was the problem. And, of course, the surprising story is that the Samaritan does have eyes to see, and he says, how can I help you? What can I do? And he picks up the man. You know where the story goes. It isn't a very complex one in that sense. It doesn't go on forever and ever. But you see, dear brothers and sisters, to have eyes that see, to see oneself as implicated in history, as responsible for love's sake, for the way the world turns out. This is at the very heart of Christian vocation in every century and in every culture. The work I do has this as its own credo, that vocation is integral, not incidental, to the missio dei. Vocation is integral, not incidental, to the missio dei. The church, sadly, all over the world and for centuries and centuries, most of the history of the church in the world, has argued in different sorts of ways for the other side of this, that vocation is to be seen as incidental, not integral, to the missio dei. There have been good books written about this, and I'm sure lots of good lectures about this. I won't do that so much this morning with you. I would simply reflect upon a grant that the Lilly Endowment made some years ago called Programs in the Theological Exploration of Vocation. They gave $2 million grants to 90 universities and colleges all across the country. I think Asbury got $2 million from that grant. But Notre Dame did too, and Baylor, and Davidson, and Wake Forest, and Duke, and Gordon, and Calvin, and Calvinists, and Catholics, and Anabaptists, and Baptists, and Lutherans, and Methodists all had access to these funds, all ecclesially-based schools that they were. I got drawn in at a certain point along the way by the director saying, you know, do you have any ideas about what we're doing with this, Steve? I said, well, one idea, and that is the years after college are more difficult years, actually. They're harder years, and the reason is that when you move from South Bend to Chicago, and you're hungry now to step into the world now that you're done with school, and you try your hardest, and you get a job, and you didn't really want to get a job, you wanted a vocation, and that's hard when you're 22 and 23 and 24, because you wanted the meaning of your life to be worked out in what you did, and all you got was a job, and that wasn't what you wanted at all, really. And I called that the realpolitik of the marketplace. But then I offered them a, an eye, a word which I smiled at over the phone, and I said, you know, but there's also a different, different problem, a harder problem. It's the real ecclesiastic of the church. And it'll be hard for that Notre Dame grad moving from South Bend to Chicago to find a parish which preaches or praises if vocation matters to either God or the world. And I said, that'll be hard for these people. And Lily said, you know, we had not seen it quite like that before, but I think you're right. So we entered into a project for the next several years together, looking at what these schools were doing with the funds they'd been given. And Eventually, in fact, what these schools, which were undergraduate institutions, what their related seminaries were doing with this question, too. I began to visit seminaries across America asking the question, so how does vocation get worked out in your seminary? Do you teach that? Because you see, I argue to the Lilly people, quoting Leslie Newbigin back to them in our first conversation, that the congregation is the hermeneutic of the gospel. And I said, I just can't see how, in fact, the long-term fruitfulness of the grant will be sustained, that the long-term hope, all this money you're giving, hundreds of millions of dollars, really, could be actually fruitful over time unless congregations somehow get involved in this with you. We begin to take up this question of vocation because the congregation is the hermeneutic of the gospel. So I began talking to deans and presidents of seminaries across America, asking the question, so how do you teach vocation here? And in places diverse from Boston to L.A., I heard the same response, basically, it was this, this. 
almost exactly the same words in different places for different people. What you're saying, Steve, is our theology. We don't teach that here, though. We don't teach that here, though. And of course, I already knew in some ways why they didn't, but I pushed back because we were friends talking to each other about things we both cared about. I said, but what do you think your graduates are going to do when they get out of here? Who will they be pastoring? Are they people who spend their lives in their vocations? So not to address that theologically as if somehow it had anything to do with the work of educating the formation of pastoral, pastorally gifted people in the world, as if somehow actually vocation is incidental to the Missio Dei, not integral. You see, we're not on the same page here somehow. You say this is your theology, but of course, at some point, dear friend, you are going to teach your theology here, aren't you? It is not appropriate or honest in some way to say, that's our theology, we don't teach that. Because you see, if it actually matters to God and the world, somehow, in the course of the three or four years you've got, it's going to be worked out somehow, woven into the fabric of the curriculum in some honest way. I remember some years ago being drawn into the Wesley, the uh, foundation work, the work on campuses across the country. Somebody who had a history here at Asbury actually drew me into this, and he was, had some national funding to convene some people together to talk about campus ministries work across America, particularly through the lens of the Wesley Foundation. So we met for several days talking together, probably about five or six of us, and I was there and weighed in for my own bits on this. And this friend, one of the friends in the group actually ended up going to Alabama, Bama as it is in uh, Tuscaloosa. And uh, he said to me about a year later, he said, you know, Steve, we've changed the paradigm of ministry here at the University of Alabama with the Wesley Foundation. He said, for years I've thought actually the point was to take students out of the university and minister to them. So they had some sort of life that made sense of their own piety and hope and beliefs away from the clamor and the pressures of the university. That was really the call of discipleship, was to take them out of their culture and minister to them and hope they could grow into a deeper faith away from the pressures of the university. He says, now that I've been thinking through what you said last year, he says, I realize that actually my ministry has to be to send them back into the university, to get involved in the fraternities and the sororities and the newspapers and the student government, and especially in their classes, because it's in those places, of course, that their vocations will be worked out. And that's really the point of the gospel of the kingdom, isn't it? is to see that it's in and through the work of our hands, of our heads, our hearts, that we work out our work in the world. That's actually the point of the gospel, isn't it? Well, I think it is, really. I think it is, actually. What does God care about in this world after all? And how does he care about it, dear people? In and through the work of his people, in universities, in businesses, in hospitals, in galleries, in theaters, in schools of all sizes, in neighborhoods, in towns, small and large, all over the face of the earth, God's doing his work in the world, in and through the work of his people. One of my own teachers was John Stott, the Protestant Pope, as we love to call Uncle John. And he was somebody who wrote so widely and preached so well and taught so faithfully over the course of his, of his life. One would be called Uncle John by those who had any relationship to him, not Dr. Stott, but please, Uncle John. And one time, after the Lausanne Congress on World Evangelization in the early 70s, he was asked by Wycliffe Hall at Oxford to give a series of lectures. He chose five words in five lectures to give himself to, to think through in his audience. Came a book that IVP published called Christian Mission in the Modern World. The first is the word mission that he takes up. 
And it does Stott's own typical best exegetical thinking through of an idea, of a question, of a passage, historically, biblically, theologically, working through missiology, the mission of Christ in the, in the essay, looking through at anthropology, who are we as human beings, what's Christ come to do in the world, bringing these two together, missiology, anthropology, and saying, you know, if we get this right, this dynamic relationship, there are implications for this. And he says, first of all, we need to rethink what the church means by vocation, because we've taught the wrong thing for way too long. We've created a hierarchy, he says, that those who are most serious about faith go off to be cross-cultural missionaries. You know the story. A little bit less serious, you stay at home, become a pastor. A little bit less serious, you become a kindergarten teacher and a nurse. A little bit less serious, maybe a physician, maybe this and this, and finally all the way down to the bottom of the line, he says, of course, are politicians. uh, He says, we need to rethink the paradigm because we've taught the wrong thing for way too long. Well, Uncle John was right about that for all of us. So, two windows into this. I've got a friend named Hans Hess. Hans came to Washington, D.C. some years ago from California via Dallas and Dallas Theological Seminary, actually, for four years. Planning to become a missionary was his plan, going on to his studies there. While he was a physics major in his university, his campus ministry basically said to him, Hans, if you're serious about Jesus, you will, of course, go on to the mission field someday, won't you? Not physics, at least. And it wasn't an evil thing to say, it wasn't an awful thing to say, but it did point him in a certain direction, which were in some ways unrelated to his own passions and gifts and interests in this world. But he did that and did that well. And and then in strange graces, strange providences, ended up some months later on Capitol Hill working for a congressman. I could tell you more of the story someday. One of the questions he was asked in those years, though, was by the congressman saying, would you respond to this question that came to me? Why are kids in America who ought to be served by antibiotics not being helped by them in the end? Why are they still getting sick? And Hans is a thoughtful guy and creative and began to do some research on the question and began to realize that, in fact, one of the significant lines of research was that we were eating so many antibiotics in our meat that, in fact, when we needed to have antibiotics for use for something else, we were already had them in our system and they weren't really being helpful in the end for things that needed to be helpful for. Life is complex, and science is complex, and your bodies are complex, and I don't want to be simplistic about that. But that was basically where Hans began to wonder about the question, could I make a healthier hamburger? And over the next year or so, his wife and he began to work this question out, and they decided, in fact, that one day they'd start Elevation Burger on Lee Highway in Falls Church, Virginia. It isn't a fancy pants place. There's no white tablecloths. It's really the kind of place where a mom who has a six-year-old and an eight-year-old wants to bring them in for lunch Sunday because she'd rather have that than McDonald's and chicken McNuggets. And so you walk in, and of course, it's not you know, wine on the table. It's simply you know, a naturally fed hamburger, naturally fed, organically produced, and French fries fried in olive oil, of all things. I've teased Hans because he's theologically educated, you see, theologically formed, as of course he is, but he's learning to make eschatological hamburgers, uh, uh, promising him that someday, you see, in the married supper of the Lamb, when you sit down at that long, long cosmic table, all the food at the table will be healthy and tasty at the very same time. There'll be no trade-offs, really. No end for donuts, no end for salads. It'll be all somehow, you know, both at the very same time. So for Hans to do his work right now, he's darndest to make healthy, tasty hamburgers. It's a signpost to the kingdom, isn't it, of the world that someday will be for all of us. So I 
one time brought some seminary students from an unnamed seminary that you all know. They came to us. They wanted to have us teach them about vocation in the world. So they got some of their best students to spend a week with us. The Capitol Hill, the K Street, the administration, the city of Washington at its best and worst, its glory and its shame. And finally, lunch one day with Hans at his restaurant. You need to know, brothers and sisters, that they protested uh, that uh, during the lunch. They were sure that Hans was just kidding himself because, of course, there were no Christian signs on the inside of the restaurant. There were no John 3.16 signs. And how would you actually know this was a seriously Christian enterprise? There weren't any signs telling you about it, actually. Someone may have a healthy hamburger, but they go to hell anyway, was one of the ways it was put. What's the point of healthy hamburger, Hans has? Aren't you just pretending you're serious about your faith? Because where are the Christian signs in your building? How will anybody know? Well, Hans prefers instead to have a sign like this, hamburgers the way they were meant to be. And you see, dear people, in a whatever world like we live in, where nothing is really meant to be or should to be or ought to be, for Hans to elusively, almost poetically, graphically set before his customers a vision of the world as it's supposed to be, as it ought to be, as it's meant to be. You see, if you have eyes to see, ears to hear, maybe a stomach to taste, you might ask the question, so what do you mean, Hans, meant to be anyway? What's meant to be all about after all, actually? I work with another company that makes M&Ms. I serve as a fellow for the Catalyst Group of the Mars Corporation, which is a huge company that serves people all over the world, about $35, $36 billion a year in sales, especially this week of the year, of course, the perversion of how All Hallows' Eve, as it's turned out to be. Um, and we give away lots and lots of little bits of Mars candy and many other things uh, all over the place. It's a big week for Mars, but about 10 years ago, I was driving into a breakfast with the chief economist of Mars. Mars is headquartered in the Washington area. It's a privately held, family-owned company, still after all these years. Three siblings own the whole thing. And the chief economist is a Frenchman. He lives in, in, in Belgium, which is where Mars' European headquarters is. And he said, I have a question for you. And for the next hour and a half or so, we talk through his own question about Milton Friedman and the Friedman School of Economics, which has argued for a generation now that the sole purpose of business is to maximize shareholder profit. And he said to me, it isn't a big enough question, Steve. There are other questions that matter. I said, well, like what? He said, well, I think that actually you have to have a more complex bottom line than simply have you maximized shareholder profit this quarter. Like what, Bruno? Well, it's a long story. Maybe we can talk about it in the lunchtime today. But over the course of years, we began to call this project the economics of mutuality and trying to address the reality of a more complex bottom line that actually would be for the purpose of sustaining profitability over time. Because you see, Mars is not like many companies, which is not a good or evil, dear people. It isn't good or evil here. But it has its own concern to actually keep making money over the long haul. They don't want to sell out, you know, in January. They want to keep being profitable for a long time. And so we call this the economics of mutuality, not communism, not socialism. Um, this is, in fact, only built on the premise that if we can't not, can not only sustain market share but grow market share, this is not a conversation we're having. Because you see, making profits isn't a bad thing in this world, actually. And so profit matters, but so do people. And so, of course, does the planet. That's a shorthand for lots and lots of work over the course of years now. This past September, the two month, last month actually, at the Oxford University School of Business, the Said School, 
the Economics and Mutualities now has its own academic home. Like Chicago has been for Friedman's School, this is now going to be find its own place in the Oxford University world at the Said School. To teach this not Christian view of economic life, though Bruni is deeply, distinctively, profoundly, thoughtfully Christian man, but sees himself as a Daniel in the world, actually, as a Daniel in the world, who somehow is advising the kings of the world on how, like Daniel himself did, on agricultural resources and building of highways and water and military strength and economic life. And Bruno sees his life that way, as somebody with a calling, with a vocation to somehow speak into the way the world turns out. I brought Bruno and another colleague down to, to Kentucky some years ago. Because the longer I listened to them, the more sure I was they needed to meet Wendell Berry. Maybe you know his life and work here in Kentucky. But we, I called him one day, I wrote him a letter, and I said, Mr. Berry, they make M&Ms, I know. This is not quite, you know, homegrown lamb, you know, but would you really willing to talk to us about an economic vision we're trying to work out? He said yes. We flew down one day and spent a whole day walking the pastures, you know, on the porch, talking about this idea of a different way to think about economic life, about business, informed by, deeply shaped by a vision of the kingdom of God. But you see, not unlike you too, who I have argued for many years, sings songs shaped by the truest truths of the universe in language the whole world can understand. You see, that same calling is my friend at the Mars Corporation. It's to sing songs shaped by the truest truths of the universe. It's to think through the meaning of business, the very purpose of economic life, shaped by the truest truths of the universe in language the whole world can understand. So you see, it wouldn't really work to go to Wall Street or to Oxford to say, you see, the jubilee of God really is normative. It is really universal, and it's true for all of us everywhere in the history of the world. This is God's intention for human life under the sun. The word of the Lord says. Well, the word of the word Lord does say, and God does speak. And, but he asks us to be his salt and light in the world, winsomely, persuasively, persistently, try to work out what it means to be in a pluralizing, secularizing, globalizing world, like you 2 has done for their music, my friends are doing with their own economic work and business plans. After a day of talking to Barry and his farm, he said, you know, I would just say this back to you. If you want to make money for a year, you have to ask certain questions. If you want to make money for 100 years, you have to ask other questions. You have to ask other questions. I remember some years ago being asked by the John Wesley Fellows of the Foundation for Theological Education. Maybe you know that project here at the seminary. I'm sure some of you do to speak to a group of PhD candidates who were being funded by this organization in Washington about the meaning of Wendell Berry's writing for theological education, which was kind of an obtuse question, I suppose, but it was a wonderful question, too. And so I did my darndest to bring Jaber Crow and other things that Berry had written about and talking about what it means to think through what Berry's arguing for in terms of human life in the light of what theological formation education ought to be all about. If Berry has something to say to the John Wesley Fellows, I was sure he had something to say to the Mars executives, too. Because you see, Barry's been someone like that, who's found a way to sing songs shaped by the truest truths of the universe in language the whole world can understand. Well, common grace for the common good. I would simply say at the end of all this to you that vocation has to be seen like that. As vocation seen as common grace for the common good. The Samaritan who had eyes to see walking along that road so many, many, many years ago, stepping into history as he did, 
seeing himself implicated in the social, political, economic, cultural issues of his day, knowing that he was responsible for love's sake, for what happened on the road to Jericho. Rather like my friend Todd, flying out of Washington yesterday, who's near that road today, laboring in love in and through his vocation to help people have eyes to see that they too are implicated, that the social and political and cultural questions are ones that are ours to answer because vocation is integral, you see, to the missio dei, the very work that God is doing in the world because he chooses to do his work through us, clay-footed men and women that we are, not in spite of ourselves, not in spite of our work, but redeeming us so that our work matters to God because it matters to what God wants done on the face of the earth. Just like he did so many years ago on the road to Jericho, many, many years ago.